You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Anyone else remember the great self-driving cars will be used by sex workers to turn tricks panic of 2018? Self-driving cars will be for sex, scientists say, read the headline at Vast Company. Self-driving cars could function as rolling bordellos, read the headline at The Telegraph. Self-driving vehicles will turn cars into brothels on wheels, read the headline at The New York Post. NBC News quoted the author of the study that led to all those panicky headlines, Scott Cohen at the University of Surrey. The study was published in the Annals of Tourism Research. Quoting Scott Cohen here, it is quite likely that autonomous vehicles will lead to prostitution, whether legal or illegal, taking place in moving autonomous vehicles in the future, close quote. The study's authors noted that 60% of Americans have already had sex in a car, usually, but not always, a parked car. But in the future, in the very spooky future, you won't have to find a dark place to park your car and hope the cops don't come along. When cars can drive themselves, you can safely have sex in your moving car, and more people will be fucking in cars. It makes sense. And some of that sex, like some of the sex that goes on right now in hotel rooms and suburban homes and parked cars, some of that sex will be paid sex. How much of it? No one can say. Maybe all of it. Teslas aren't cheap. So anyway, people looked at self-driving cars a few years ago and thought, the real problem with these things isn't how they run people over, just like regular cars do now. Pedestrian deaths in the U.S. up 21% since 2019. Biggest increase in pedestrian deaths since the 1970s. And the real problem with these self-driving cars isn't more cars clogging streets or our failure to build mass transit systems in walkable cities that make it possible for people to not need cars in the first place. And the real problem isn't another megalomaniacal billionaire hosting SNL. No, the real problem with these self-driving cars is that someone somewhere might turn a trick in one of those things. And the chance that sex workers might get their sex work cooties all over the concept of driverless cars, well, that is something we need to think about and panic about and then do something about because, well, because maybe if we give it some more thought, we'll finally come up with a way to stop people from buying and selling sex. Literally nothing we've tried over the last 5,000 years has worked. Arrest, prosecution, imprisonment, even exile, mutilation, torture, execution. None of that worked. Maybe traffic tickets will do the, uh, you know, trick. A quick digression. We should be moving toward the full decriminalization of sex work in cars and other places. As Human Rights Watch said when they came out for decriminalizing sex work a few years ago, government should not be telling consenting adults who they can have sex with and on what terms. And criminalization, again, quoting from Human Rights Watch, makes sex workers more vulnerable to violence, including rape, assault, and murder by attackers who see sex workers as easy targets because they are stigmatized and unlikely to receive help from the police. Well, our paranoia about sex work and where it might happen next took a very Midwestern turn recently. Ice fishing is banned in Hudson, Ohio. 
And the city council there in Hudson is thinking about opening Hudson Spring Lake to ice fishers. Ice fishers are people whose idea of fun is to walk out into the middle of a frozen lake, cut a hole in the ice, and then sit down on the ice and do some fishing. Fishing, which isn't even fun when the weather is nice. Allowing ice fishers to have their idea of fun on Hudson Spring Lake while it's still freezing over, could lead to trouble. I say trouble. There could be trouble right here in Hudson City. Trouble with a capital T that rhymes with P that stands for prostitution? Yeah. Hudson Mayor Craig Schubert had a warning for the city council when they were deliberating about whether or not to open Hudson Spring Lake to ice fishers because there could be unintended consequences of legalizing ice fishing. You see, some people who ice fish like to build little ice huts over their little ice holes. And if the unsightly nature of those makeshift ice huts, ice shanties, wasn't bad enough, the mayor said, and I'm quoting, that leads to another problem, prostitution. And now you've got the police chief and the police department involved. You know, driverless cars, I can see. People have sex in cars now. Driverless cars, yeah, people are going to fuck in those things. And some people are going to get paid for it. But an ice fishing shack in the middle of a frozen lake sitting on a wood pallet which is sitting on the ice while the wind howls outside the plastic sheeting sounds like an awkward place to turn a trick awkward like a car for instance awkward place to have sex a car for love or money whether that car is self-driven or operated by a human being it's pretty much why people stop having sex in cars as soon as they have their own apartments That's 60% of Americans cited in that study who've had sex in cars. I haven't seen the data, but I'm guessing most were teenagers or very young adults when they had sex in cars. So, yeah, I don't think people are going to be clamoring to have sex, paid or otherwise, in ice fishing huts. Look, I I believe that human beings are infinitely perverse. Whatever it is, however it feels, whatever it's made of, someone somewhere is jacking off about it right now. I believe in Rule 34, which is, if it exists or can be imagined, there is internet porn of it. Ice huts exist, and ice huts obviously excite the imagination of the mayor of Hudson, Ohio, but there's no internet porn of it. No ice hut porn I could find online. None. And yes, this is a dare. If you can find some ice hut porn online, even just some ice fishing porn, no hut required, send it to me, because I would love to be proved wrong. And if there isn't any out there, someone is going to have to make some. It's the only way we can save Rule 34. All right, a little update before we get to the show. Craig Schubert, mayor of Hudson, Ohio, no longer mayor of Hudson, Ohio. The Republican resigned his office after other Republicans on the Hudson City Council accused him of embarrassing the town of Hudson after his comments about prostitution and ice fishing huts went viral and demanded he step down. So now we know what it takes for a Republican office holder to have to resign in shame. Supporting an insurrection? Not a problem. Blowing a hole in Rule 34? You gotta go. All right, coming up on today's show, on this week's Micro Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the Micro and Magnum, Shan Boudram, host of Lovers and Friends podcast, joins me. We talked about mismatched libidos and getting touched out when you have a kid, love bombing, and what that means and black girl magic. Some of my conversation with Shan is on the micro. All of my conversation with Shan is on the Magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love. All right, let's get to the calls. Hey, Dan. So we just hired a new person, and 
it appears as if they are in some sort of sexual relationship in which their partner is a master, I think. I don't know. They haven't explicitly said, but they need to ask for permission from their partner for everything, including coming to into the office and going on a mandatory company retreat. And tonight we had a all-employee dinner in which their partner fed them the entire time in front of everyone. And I was kind of uncomfortable with it, and it was just kind of bizarre in a work setting, but now I feel like I'm being sex negative, and I'm just wondering, should this be allowed in public? Like, should people be allowed to be fed by their partner at a work setting and by just being not accepting. Uh, I just don't really know how to address it. And it's coming into work because they are saying that they can't come to a mandatory retreat because they have to ask their partner. And then I feel like it's kind of abusive, but I don't want to intrude and I just need some help. When Erica Lust joined us for the last sack lunch, one of the Magnum subs who got to ask a question of uh, me and Erica was a kinky person who was a little annoyed, upset that when they tried to share some of what their DS sex life and relationships involved with their sister, their sister was kind of squicked out by this. And I feel very conflicted because, you know, I don't want to say to kinky people, you can't be out about your kinks because it's going to make some people uncomfortable because the same shit was said to me about being gay when I was 15 years old and 16 years old and 17 years old and is still said to me by some people about being gay, that your gayness makes some people uncomfortable, religious people uncomfortable. That's why we're getting these don't say gay bills in Florida and Tennessee. And so you should have to shut the fuck up. And obviously I don't think I should have to shut the fuck up about being gay. But here's the thing. When I tell people I'm gay, when I told my mother I was gay, and this is what I said to the caller uh, or the Magnum sub during the sack lunch uh, Zoom call. When I told my mom I was gay, I gave her kind of, you know, it was the bare outline. Like, I'm gay. I like to have sex with boys. I like to be with boys. I'm attracted to other men. And I didn't go into exactly what I was doing with those other men. Exactly, you know, I didn't tell my mom whether I was a top or a bottom. I didn't need to tell her that. I didn't tell my mom that the first time I slept with a guy, I discovered I had no gag reflex and that was making me a popular dude at the gay bars I'd started to frequent as a teenager. She didn't need to know that at that granular level, but she did need to know if I was going to live my life and be who I am that I was gay. Beyond that, I ran my mother on a need-to-know basis, and my mother did not need to know that I had no gag reflex. Seems to me the same standard kind of applies to coworkers. You know, you're out as gay at work, and your coworkers know you're gay, and they can make certain informed assumptions about what you might like if you're gay. You might like sucking men's dicks. You might like getting your dick sucked by other men. You might like anal. But beyond that, your coworkers, like your siblings, don't need to know. And I think that is a model that should be adopted and embraced by people into DS relationships. That's not something you should be ashamed of, enjoying that kind of dynamic in your relationship. Indeed, a lot of religious people 
enjoy that kind of dynamic, a DS dynamic in their relationships. And they're really public about that wife joyfully submits to the husband head of household role play game that they engage in for Jesus. And it seems to me that people who are into DS sex should be able to be just as kind of matter of fact about it as the gays are matter of fact about being gay, some of whom are kinky and the religious people who are into DS stuff, but rationalize it as what Jesus wants are open about their DS shit. The people into DS dynamics should be able to be kind of matter of fact about that. But still you can be matter of fact about it. Mom, I'm gay beyond that. You don't need to know, you know, you can be matter of fact about having a kind of DS relationship without burdening people with too much information without giving them details they didn't need to know about. If your coworker needs their master's permission to leave the house in the morning and come to work, presumably they're going to get that permission every day since they show up at work every day. They didn't need to tell you about that. You didn't need to know. If they need their master's permission to come to a mandatory retreat, they can go get their master's permission and they don't need to tell you about that and they probably shouldn't have told you about that. And showing up at a dinner and engaging in DS play, the master feeding the submissive the way they did. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's right. The submissive showing up and having a chain locked around their neck, which is practically a fashion accessory these days. You can get those kinds of uh, dom sub chain collars with little locks now from Tiffany's. I don't think that's a big deal. That's like the DS equivalent of seeing somebody's engagement ring. Like, all right, they're engaged. They're straight or they're gay and they're engaged and they're in love and they're probably having lots of whatever kind of sex that they enjoy. You see that chain on somebody's neck and you're like, all right, they have kind of a DS thing going good for them. But yeah, the that person having to kneel beside their partner at a public event that's not a kink event or that's not a gay bar or a fetishy club where people sometimes get their kink on publicly. I don't think that's okay. I really don't. I think that's failing to run coworkers on the need to know basis that we all should run our siblings and family members on. They should know who we are. We can give them the bare outline. But beyond that, getting into specifics, much less engaging in the kind of sex play in front of other people, that's not fair. It's kind of a consent violation. <laughs> and I don't support it. And I think that you have a right to go to this employee and say, whatever you guys are doing, and the fact that you're in a DS relationship, that is fine. That is common. A lot of people are interested in DS relationships. If you need your master's permission to come to work, great. Go get your master's permission to come to work. Your coworkers don't need to know that you had to get your master's permission to come to work any more than you need to know that your supervisor or one of your fellow coworkers got a facial this morning before coming to work. Uh, uh, my daughter told me to call in here. Uh, ever, ever since my wife Barb died, uh, I've been having trouble with the, well, let me back up here. Well, I'll tell you, uh, back in the day, ever since the 70s, me and my wife, Barb, you know, we uh, we always been cranking the hog on them old uh, big block Chevys, I tell you, big on BBCs, right? And 
Well, ever since uh, Barb died, I just ain't been able to crank the hog on them old BBCs like I used to. I rest it. I tell you what, man, uh, there ain't nothing like getting the old BBC revved up, I tell you what. But, uh, you know, it just, it just ain't the same without Barb, you know. She used to really take a pounding back there and... You know, ever since she's gone, I just, I ain't been able to get my crankshaft to, uh, rev on up, man. I tell you, uh, I don't know if there's any other older fellas out here with a similar problem, but I guess Jesus just had to lay her down, had to lay down on Barb there. But if anybody out there give me any advice, I need help cranking the hot dog on them old BBCs there. Uh, anybody can help me with, uh, old time and light. Been shooting in the dark here, as they say. I ain't got no time and light no more. They took that in the divorce. But, well, she's dead now, so there's no getting her back either, so. It's, uh, old time and lights, uh, Seen brighter days, but go ahead and let me know what you can do uh, if you can give me any help reliving them old memories and cranking them hogs. My sex advice spidey senses are tingling, and I think this might be a fake call. An attempt to get BBC on my podcast over and over again. I've never heard anyone use the initialism BBC to refer to big block. Chevy's British Broadcasting Corporation, the Bangkok Bank of Commerce, the Bluegrass Brewing Company, and a certain somewhat fetishizing and dehumanizing reference to the penises of black men. Yeah, I've heard all that called BBC, but big block Chevy's? Yeah, no. But on the off chance that this isn't a fake and you and your late wife, Barb, were cranking the hog on your Chevy back in the day and you are missing her and sad. I did want to respond and just say, I am sorry for your loss and to then broaden out and make the point that one of the things we lose when our long-term partners pass away is physical intimacy and companionship. You know, if you're with somebody for decades, it may not be cranking the hog and rocking the Chevy the way this caller and Barb were apparently still cranking hogs and rocking Chevys all those years. But touch, intimacy, closeness, all of those things are suddenly taken from you. And the absence of even that kind of casual intimacy, or, you know, if you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s and still fucking like crazy, you're buying Joan Price's books and Having sex at your age, great. You're suddenly going to be missing that too. And that seems like something that we don't acknowledge uh, at the end of a relationship when it's death that ends the relationship. And something there's not a lot of support for people uh, who are suddenly missing that kind of touch, that kind of intimacy, that kind of connection. This is a place where I feel that a culture that – celebrated sex work that didn't persecute sex workers and 
drive them off the internet, but a culture that celebrated sex work. This is somewhere that sex workers could do a lot of good for people, provide comfort, provide the physical connection and touch that someone who's a widow or widower in their 60s, 70s, 80s may not have the energy to go out and find. So yeah, anyway, uh, I was afraid to answer that question because I'm afraid it's a fake and someone just wants to hear BBC on my podcast. But there was something about the end of the call that made me start to think that this guy might be for real. And I wanted to err on the side of offering at least some support to this caller and some sympathy for their loss. And, you know, to grind that ax, I've ground for years that there's a lot of good sex workers could do for people. And there's a lot of good sex workers do for people now, but they do it under tremendous pressure, uh, legal persecution, social stigma, and they don't deserve that persecution. They don't deserve to be driven off the internet and they don't deserve the social stigma. So yeah, I'd like to live in a world where someone in this caller's condition, going through what this caller is going through now, had the option of meeting up getting together with, forming a relationship with even, a kind, compassionate, perhaps older sex worker who can meet their needs, who can fill that gap, who can provide them with the intimacy. It can be harder for older widowed people and their Chevys to find. Hi, everyone. It's Nancy. Okay, don't tell Dan. But that last call gave me an idea. He doesn't listen to the show. He really doesn't. So he won't hear what I'm about to ask of you. People assume we get a lot of fake calls all the time, and we really don't, or at least I don't think we do. But for April Fool's Day, let's load Dan up with a ton of fake calls and see if he can tell. So will you please send in some fake questions? Make it interesting, keep it under three minutes, record it on your phone, and send it to voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Make sure you say fake at the beginning so I know to include it, and then we'll put together the weirdest show ever for April Fool's Day. And again, don't tell Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 36-year-old married gay guy. Because of work, my husband and I have been long distance, which is awful, but it's not what this question is about. So I'm seeing this other guy who seems very sexually repressed. We had sex twice. The first time, he barely touched me. He didn't go down on me. And when I went down on him, he asked if we could slow things down. I was obviously happy to oblige. I told him I wanted him to feel comfortable. He told me he was very comfortable. We didn't come. We just cuddled and slept, and that was very nice. The second time was a little more engaged. He did go down on me for like five seconds. We jerked each other off. We came, but I asked him what he was into sexually, and he told me he didn't know. And it broke my heart because he's 38 and he doesn't know what he likes to do in bed. He had an extremely repressive childhood. He was raised in a Christian family. When he was a teenager, his mom took him away uh, to live in an evangelical community. He told me it was really abusive. He knew he liked guys from an early age. But to use his words, he was really fucked in the head. He managed to get away from his mom when he was 23. He told me he fucked the first guy when he was 28. 
He is not out to his family. He only started coming out to his friends last year. And, you know, we live in an extremely progressive European city. So his friends have been nothing but supportive. He managed to overcome his religious upbringing in a lot of ways. So he parties, he drinks, he does recreational drugs. But when it comes to his sexuality, he's clearly conflicted. Usually, I would totally move away from someone who's this self-loathing, but I really like him and I wish I could help. You know, I think about all the men that I had sex with and how they helped me feel better about myself. They helped me learn about my own sexuality. I thought about recommending that he watches porn. You talked, you talk a lot about how, you know, porn can help us figure out what we like to do in bed. But I'm sure he consumes porn, and I fear that actually part of his anxiety may come precisely from what he thinks he needs to perform, you know, because he watches it in porn. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts then on how I could help him, uh, or perhaps I shouldn't try to help him. You know, he told me ideally he would like to find a partner, and because I'm married, what I can offer is somewhat limited. But I really like him and I wish, you know, I wish I could, I could help. He's had a decade, not since he came out. You say he got away from his mom at 23, came out, sucked his first dick or had his first sexual encounter with a man at 28. Now he's 38 years old, lives in a big liberal progressive place where he drinks and uses drugs and parties and has a wide circle of friends who know who he is and accept him for who he is. If he hasn't figured this shit out yet, he's not going to figure it out for you. He may not want to figure it out. It's been a decade. I suspect that he may know what it is that he wants sexually, but he's afraid to say it, whatever it might be. Maybe what he wants sexually is really limited, and he fears rejection because his sexual repertoire or range is just so limited. You say that you went down on him briefly and he asked if you could slow things down. Slower than oral in a gay sexual encounter is stationary or putting it into reverse. Maybe he's just not that into oral or anal sex. You say that the second time you slept together and you just jacked off together, that went a little bit better after he had your dick in his mouth for a split second. Perhaps that's all he's interested in, all he's up for, all he's capable of. And maybe that has something to do with his upbringing and the damage done by his shitty evangelical family, parents, and community. Or maybe this is just who he is. Maybe he's on the asexuality spectrum and he is not that interested in most kinds of sexual activity and is only making himself minimally available to you sexually because he feels not joy at that connection, not desire for you, but that he needs to toss that out there to sustain your interest in him romantically. But if he can't articulate any of this himself, I'm just wildly speculating. If after being out and in a big liberal city with friends that you go drinking and partying with, for a decade, if he hasn't managed to figure it out in a decade, he's not going to figure it out for you, for your dick. Be his friend. 
stay in touch with him, tell him why you're not interested in pursuing anything further romantically or sexually. You can offer if he just wants to lay with you and have body contact and talk and relax and think out loud about sex and desire. Maybe you could make yourself available for that. But I would, if I were you, stop thinking of myself as dating this man, as someone, I would stop thinking of him as someone I'm seeing. You can hang out, you can be intimate, but you're going to have to accept that if, yeah, at 38 years old, he hasn't worked through any of this shit yet, he's not going to work through it for you in the next three months, six months, year, however long it is you're going to be separated from your husband and living in this city with him. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm calling from Canada looking for advice to give to my sister. She's a woman in her late 20s in a hetero-monogamous relationship. This takes some setting up, so just bear with me. To start, three years ago, our dad died from cancer. It was an extremely traumatizing experience, and my family still struggles with his passing daily. My sister was casually seeing her current boyfriend during my dad's final months, and they made the relationship official shortly after my dad's passing. They've had a generally happy relationship, but the longer they're together, the more she's realized that her boyfriend struggles with what seems like an anxiety disorder. He often has panic attacks and requires a lot of support from her. This would be a non-issue, but he rejects the idea of therapy, and my sister is actively tackling her own mental health issues, especially those related to my dad's passing. My sister and father were very close, and she struggles to confront and accept or even share her emotions. She started seeking therapy and has made a lot of positive advancements as of late. Over the last few months, the pressure from her boyfriend to be a constant support has become too much, and she's been thinking of ending the relationship for the sake of her own mental health. Even aside from that, she doesn't see the relationship advancing due to other incompatibilities, and this doesn't feel like her forever partner. This seemed like an easy decision until last week, when her boyfriend's mother was diagnosed with cancer and given less than a year to live. She doesn't know what to do. Should she stay in the relationship, reliving the trauma she endured during our own father's illness for the sake of supporting this person that she cares about but doesn't necessarily envision herself with long-term? Or should she break it off for the sake of her own mental health and to not drag out the inevitable? I don't know what to tell her as both options leave someone hurting. Listening to your call, I was reminded of something that I read on Lena Dune's Instagram stories last week. Lena Dune, of course, is the very smart and compassionate person behind Ask a Sub, an Instagram uh, educational account about DS relationships. Lena Dune's been a guest here on the Savage Lovecast. Lena Dune now has her own podcast, Ask a Sub. It's an excellent podcast. I recommend it. And Lena does a regular Friday night Q&A with her followers on Instagram in her stories. They ask questions, she answers. And one of Lena's followers asked her, I need to end a relationship with a partner who is clinically depressed and won't seek help. Lena responded, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before helping others. Just know you're doing the right thing. I thought of that when I was listening to you talk about your sister. She's put her own oxygen mask on. She sought help for her mental health challenges, for her depression and trauma in the wake of your father's death. And my heart goes out to you and I'm sorry for your loss. And there's her boyfriend who not only can't she help put on his oxygen mask? He refuses to allow her to put that fucking oxygen mask on him or to get him to put his own oxygen mask on by seeking help for his anxiety disorder, help from others, help from a professional in the same way your sister has sought help from a professional. And so your sister 
who's a kind and decent and loving and generous person and wishes, importantly, to be perceived as kind and decent and loving and generous, feels trapped in this relationship. She can't leave because he will fall apart. Now, I don't think it's always the case that people who refuse to get help and put tremendous pressure and burdens on their partners are doing this consciously, but I do think it's occasionally the case that subconsciously a person realizes that their partner isn't going to leave them so long as they are a mess, so long as they aren't getting help elsewhere, their partner is going to stay, not because they want to stay, but because they feel obligated to stay, which is exactly the case with your sister. And perversely, your sister staying might be the thing that is preventing her boyfriend from getting the help that he needs. Right now, so long as he doesn't get help from a professional, so long as he doesn't see a counselor or a therapist, your sister is going to stay in this relationship and he, consciously or generously, subconsciously, knows it. And so he doesn't get help. And he won't get help so long as your sister is there. So it may be the most loving thing your sister could do. It may be the thing that convinces him to put his own oxygen mask on if your sister were to leave him. Now, your sister's boyfriend's mother's cancer diagnosis. Yeah, that's a fucking bummer and a complication. But one year to live, in many cases, in some cases, can become five years, can become 10 years. I know someone who was given one to two years to live 15 years ago and is still alive. How long is your sister going to feel like she has to stick around? And let's say the boyfriend's mom dies in a year, two years. Well, then your sister's going to be in this, a new predicament, a new trap where she feels like she can't leave because her boyfriend's mother just died. And he is grieving, I would urge your sister to get out now and not to frame it as a false choice between supporting this person and breaking it off with this person. She can end her romantic and sexual relationship with this person. She can separate from him physically, move the fuck out and still offer him her support on the condition that he respect her boundaries on the condition that he get help from someone else too, so that your sister doesn't get sucked back in. It's a really awful situation. I feel terrible for your sister. I feel terrible for her boyfriend. And again, I want to say that it may not be the case that the boyfriend is being consciously manipulative here, that he's refusing to seek help, refusing to put his own fucking oxygen mask on so that your sister can never leave him and feels trapped. But your sister, whether it's conscious or unconscious manipulation, it's manipulation. And your sister needs to give herself permission to go. And she may be surprised at how quickly after she leaves, her now ex-boyfriend is seeking the help, getting the help he refused to get while she was with him. Hey, Dan. I'm not sure how to approach an ongoing issue with my partner who's out two years. Basically, it feels like a lot of the elements of our relationship were sliding downhill. For example, we had what I would consider a great sex life for almost the first year. We had sex many times a week, and he was really affectionate with me, and I thought we were basically on the same page with that sort of thing. 
which was great because I am a very physical person and it is the number one way that I feel and express love. But after about the first year, there was a steady and noticeable decline. Not like a peak and trust situation, but literally just a decline in any physical touch. We talked about it several times over the years and at first he said that even if he didn't want to have penetrative sex, he'd still look after me in other ways so that I'd be satisfied. That lasted maybe a few months or so and now it doesn't happen at all. And in terms of penetrative sex, I'd say maybe once every month or two and that's usually after I've mentioned sex in some way, so it all feels pretty obligatory. The same sort of thing has happened with our communication as well. Uh, he doesn't really want to talk to me, and more and more I feel like my presence is generally kind of irrelevant. But every now and again he'll have a really good day and do something really sweet. And for a while I forget how uncertain I was before. I know he has stuff going on. He's got some things going on at work. He has sleeping problems. He's working through some mental health issues, and I'm really proud of him for that, and I want to be supportive. I just don't know how many times I can or I should be continually cutting down on my expectations and making adjustments. I feel like I've been consciously trying and training myself to be okay with less and less in order to match what he's comfortable with. So just when I think we've reached an understanding, there's another decline and I have to start all over. I don't want to feel like I'm giving up, but I also don't know how to keep working on something with someone who seems to want less and less and has less and less time and effort to give me and um, our relationship. Oh, oh, it's time for a second opinion. Joining me for this second opinion, Shan Boudram, the host of Lovers and Friends podcast, author of the best-selling The Game of Desire. She merges sexology and psychology as a certified intimacy educator. Think Dr. Ruth meets Rihanna. Hey, Shan, thank you so much for coming on my you show. You forgot a very big piece of my bio. Oh, my gosh. Which long-term Dan Savage fangirl, obsessed, and incredibly excited to be here. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on my show. I'm a new Shan fan. I've been listening to a whole bunch of your shows in anticipation of getting to talk with you. Uh, and I just think you're great. No one gets to come on Second Opinion if I don't think they give really great advice. So Amazing. welcome to my show. Uh, I'm just going to sum up my question for you after listening to this call. Why won't women give up? I think that there's something beautiful about that. I mean, when we choose to love somebody, we choose to acknowledge somebody as being special above other people for usually no discernible reason. Our brain just says, I pick you and I choose you and I'm choosing to provide resources, time and energy towards you. And so we don't give up because that's the spirit of love. Is it a trap though? I mean, women are socialized to be the nurturers, to work on the relationship. And I hear all the time from women who are making a larger and larger investment in a relationship where their needs aren't getting met. And it's not just from women. I often hear from people whose partners are working through a mental health issue uh, and aren't getting their needs met that they feel like they can't prioritize their own needs or they're a monster if they leave. Mm -hmm. How do you get out of that trap? I think that you get to a place where you decide that 
the best possible version of you is not possible with this configuration. And I think when you acknowledge that, you also acknowledge that in the other person, it probably is the exact same formula, right? Because when we're frustrated and constantly coming down on our partner, we're also minimizing maybe their potential for growth. And so I think you can get to that place where you say, I don't see a foreseeable road where the version of me that I want to become is possible with the person I'm currently with. And that Honestly, people come to the answer a lot sooner than they come to the decision to leave, which is unfortunate. But in this particular story, when I heard it, I immediately thought mental health issues. And I also immediately thought of monogamish, which is the, we were just talking about this back and forth before of, this is one of the scenarios that I've heard you talk about before on the, the Savage cast in that when you get to a place where there's an incompatibility on one particular area. So if for example, I loved theater and you didn't, I would have no problem having a theater partner. Um, and then the rest of our intimacy needs we could have met and I wouldn't be frustrated because you wouldn't come with me to a hobby that really lights up my life and lights my fire. And so when it comes to sexuality, is there not a possible configuration? Cause I can honestly empathize with the other partner who must feel slightly exhausted, you know, from the constant bids for attention. Yeah. The constant bits for attention. People have these hangups though, like doing sex with somebody else isn't the same thing as going bowling with somebody else or going yes. to the theater with somebody yes. else. We attach so much importance to sex, but in this way, that's very much in conflict. This is so important that you shouldn't do it with anybody else ever. Also, this is so unimportant, this sex stuff, that you shouldn't exit a relationship just because the sex isn't working. Sex is trivial and not important compared to love, intimacy, connection. I think the trap the caller might be in is this idea that people get in their heads that you can only love somebody when you stay, that you can't love and leave, that you mm -hmm. can't love someone out of a relationship. You can only love someone in a relationship. Yeah. And I believe that especially when you get to that point, when you acknowledge that the growth potential isn't there for the individuals, leaving is an act of love. And it is an act to say that I, I see a better version of you that you can prioritize your wellness in ways that you can't with me because our just needs are completely conflicting. I just empathize this call too, because I'm also in a relationship where my love language is physical touch. My partner is not necessarily the most affectionate person with me. And to me, what I found made a massive difference is when I stopped constantly making bids and complaints about it. Um, and through that, allowing my partner to feel like they weren't failing because I think no one likes to do math if they feel like they're not good at math. Mm -hmm. And so if they feel like, oh, I'm actually okay at math. They feel more enthusiasm about coming to the classroom. So almost that reversal made an impact for me, but it does sound like she's tried to do that in allowing whatever he could offer to be enough. But then it seems like if she backs off, he lessens the intimacy, which to that case sounds more like your advice is the right advice. Uh, I'm not saying that's this is the case with this caller or her situation or her boyfriend, but I have seen this with others and I just want to send this out to others who may be in a situation where, you know, you're with somebody and they're, they have a mental health challenge, the depression, anxiety, whatever it might be. And you tell yourself they're not well enough for me to leave and you stay. And they, I think intuit it, or maybe that's explicitly stated. And then they don't have any incentive to get better. If getting better means you're going to go where you could go. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, I'm not saying that all people with mental health challenges or crisis or, or, or diagnoses are taking hostages of their romantic partners, but I have seen it enough that I always feel like I need to flag it. That if you tell yourself, I can't go until they're well, that disincentivizes their getting well. You mm -hmm. have to be free to go whether or not they get well. That doesn't mean you have to abandon them. It doesn't mean you have to be cruel about it or gin up a conflict that gives you an excuse to walk. It just means you have to, that that can't be the only reason you stay. I agree. 
And I think that again, if you get to that place where you're like, it just, I always go back to the golden rule, which is if that person never changed a single thing about who they are today, would you continue to stay with them? And if your answer is a very clear, very fast no, and there's no trend to showcase that things are gonna be different in the near future or in the somewhat near future, then that's the decision that you should probably act on. And that's healthiest for both parties involved because I wouldn't wanna be with somebody who didn't love me, but loved an idea of me that I may or may not live up to. I think it's really interesting what you said about your love language being touch and your partner's not a very touchy person. You said, it sounds like you adjusted your expectations and you decided that being in a relationship with a little less physical affection than you might prefer was a price of admission that you were willing to pay to be with your partner. And you let go of whatever anger you might have about not getting enough of that because you just like recognize that whatever else he brings to the table compensates for this deficit uh, of physical touch. And you stop policing and, and counting and regulating, right? Um, is it possible for someone to do that in a context where what they're not getting is sex from their exclusive sexual partner? I mean, if you can have other personal outlets that are, allow you to, I think also for me, a, a big, to be honest, a big adjustment factor too I, in my expectations around physical touches that I had a child. So my husband is very sexual, so that was never a problem, but it was more just the, the hugs, the check-ins, the kisses throughout the day. And so when I had a baby, I had another outlet for that physical affection. So maybe that could have also contributed to why my, it wasn't such a big ask for me to say, oh, I can lessen my bids to you and accept whatever you're doing. In that, I actually noticed his physical affection rise when it wasn't a constant issue every two weeks in our relationship. But also I just found either I was paying attention less or it just didn't bother me as much. Oh but in all how lucky you are true. there's a lot of um, right. women out there who are new parents who are getting so much physical touch constant physical touch from their newborns that they're kind of pushing their partners away their male or female partners because they're touched out and you had this child and this child brought a lot of touch into your life that kind of got your male partner off the hook from having to provide well, you with all it of it bounced out because my baby's also not very cuddly. So she takes after <laughs> her dad in that way. So he's not very cuddly. She's not very cuddly. So I think somewhere in the middle, I'm like, this is sufficient. So I can imagine if I had a very touchy baby, maybe I would feel that way. But now I'm breaking even and things are going well. But I think in this particular person's case, if it's a massive part of your general well-being, um, I think having your love language meet should be in your top five requirements for a long-term romantic partner. And so um, I do think that the advice that you gave can be very freeing. I, I open the my, my questions for you with like, why won't women leave? It's often, in my view, women who stay and stay and stay. She's three years into a relationship. The sex collapsed after one year. Like she's given it an extra two years. I think you've done your you've done your best and you're free to go and it doesn't make you a bad person. If you leave for this reason, if you leave for sex, it's a sexually exclusive relationship. If the sex ain't there, you can't justify staying. Like, yeah, like well, can you take another 50 years of this? I would ask the caller. Oh, that's an incredible question. I think women have a bad habit and sometimes a loving habit of dating the potential rather than the person. <gasps> oh, that's so smart. And there's something nurturing and, you know, inherently feminine and beautiful about that. But at a certain point, again, you have to ask yourself if this person never changed and this is who they are and who they're presenting. Um, am I comfortable with this? And it doesn't, it sounds like he's comfortable with where he's at. It's, you're the one who's discomfort. So the, the change to call the actually comes on you. All right, let's take another call. 
Hi, Dan, 33-year-old bisexual cis female somewhere in the U.S. progressive city. I am recently divorced, going through therapy for the abuse I endured married to a toxic narcissist for over seven years. After a year of separation and my divorce finalized, I met someone I'm really into. The problem is how we met and what's transpired. We met at a swingers party with his ex-wife. I had a really fun threesome with the both of them, and we tried to start a throuple. Originally, I was more into the woman until she started showing signs of toxic narcissism. She love-bombed me, and after addressing her problematic behaviors and providing resources to help, she started to shut down, deflect, and blame me. I knew it was over after I went on a date with her ex-husband, which we had invited her to, but she canceled and told us to go on without her. Even though we tried to include her and got her a gift on our date, she no longer wanted to pursue the throuple. I continued to see her ex-husband because our connection is very strong. He reaffirmed the ex-wife's narcissistic behavior and I could relate. In a way, this felt like survivor bond versus a trauma bond. Anyway, during the holidays, they had a huge fight and since then have stopped seeing each other intimately. Problem is, even though he has sole custody, they have a child together and he wants her to have a relationship with their kid. We are both poly and I feel weird setting ultimatums, but I feel like if he falls back for his ex, I'm going to have to walk away or at least establish some kind of boundaries. Polyamory is new to me and I never want to be monogamous again. The problem I have is... If I was with someone who continues to be abused from a previous relationship, what do I do? They have a history of getting back together, so perhaps he hasn't been able to break his trauma bond. How much do I try to help him get out, and how much do I put myself first and walk away when things get bad? So, love bombing is suddenly a buzzword or term you're hearing. We're hearing everywhere. I'm an old, you're young. What the hell is love bombing? What are people talking about with this love bombing shit? I didn't get the memo. Uh, It's when you enter into a relationship and the person uh, gives you time, attention, physical touch. They might be vulnerable with you. They might provide gifts to you. They're available. Their schedule's open to you. And so they do this until you get addicted or hooked on this dopamine hit that you get with this person. And the hits come very frequent. And then as soon as they can tell that you are attached to them emotionally or now that they've nurtured dependence with you, they start to back off altogether. And so that's the bomb. It's like a hit of all this affection and dopamine. And then as soon as they can tell that you're now on the hook, they back off. It doesn't sound like the person who's being accused of doing the love bombing here, the ex-wife of this woman's current male partner, uh, had a chance to back off. The caller told the the person she's accusing of love bombing to back the fuck off first. She wasn't receding from her and she said, where are you going? She was like, oh my God, you're love bombing me, which just sounds like she's infatuated and wants to be with you. Isn't that like everything you described until the withdrawing sounds like the first three months of all good loving relationships, not toxic nut relationships. Well, good loving relationships should also still be mutual, gradual and logical, right? Like I don't all of a sudden, if I have a full life, I I can't just clear Tuesday at 4 p.m. for you, right? Like you had to book me like Dan Savage did. He wasn't just free like that. So there is something bizarre when somebody all of a sudden has endless resources and time and even opening up to somebody that quickly can be a little bit alarming because we're supposed to do this mutually, gradually, and logically. Yeah, that intimacy, like too close, too fast, uh, asking for too much of a commitment right away, like saying I love you after 
36 hours. Yeah, that can be, I, I recognize that as potentially problematic, but someone being excited about being with you, really liking you, having a crush on you, being infatuated, like that, if you can mutually acknowledge you're both getting carried away at this early stage, but you're like going to enjoy that feeling, but not manipulate each other with it and not be deluded about that feeling being a sustainable one. I can see that. But yeah, like somebody who suddenly is available 24 hours a day and wants to merge with you. Yes. <laughs> that you should be wary of. I, I, I'm not entirely convinced the caller was with this woman long enough. Well, the only clue that she kind of gave is that there was a point in time when she invited uh, this woman to come out on a date with her husband and the woman declined. And it sounded as if there was like an exasperation in her voice where it was like, and she didn't want to come. So perhaps there was a few times mm. that she put a bit out there for them to hang out. And the woman all of a sudden wasn't available. Whereas in the beginning, she was all, you know, scheduled open for okay, her. I guess I had kind of a negative reaction to at least, and it may be just my bias. The caller says that this woman and the guy she's dating now, who are ex-spouses, have a child together, and the guy has full custody of the child. And yet, the pro she describes it as a problem. Problem is he wants to have a relationship, or he wants her to have a relationship with their kid. Okay, I don't think that's a problem that somebody wants their child to have a relationship with the other biological parent. I think that speaks well of him. And she's contemplating issuing an ultimatum to separate him from his ex-wife. I guess that means also separating this kid from the other bio parent. And this to me, like is a mayday parade of red flags, not about the dude and not about his ex-wife, but about, I'm, I'm sorry, caller. And I know you're a fan about you and, and your judgment here. Mm -hmm. And whether this is a, whether you're making a calm and rational assessment of the situation, if the guy has full custody because the ex-wife is abusive or dangerous or a threat to the child or an unfit parent. If there are other issues going on, okay, then maybe like you stepping in and saying, you need to put more distance between yourself and this woman. And also this kid, like court has ruled the kid and this woman should be more distant than a custodial parent relationship. Okay. So maybe there's more going on here than the caller thought to mention in the three minutes we allow for calls. But I'm a little concerned because I don't think it's a problem when someone wants the other parents have a relationship with a child. Yes. I think that that always gets sticky. And as a, not even a co-parent at this point, because I don't know if you have a formal role that way where you make decisions or weigh in on the kid's well-being. But even if you did, it's a very, very, very tricky area to get involved in. Um, so maybe to your point, like I said, we don't have the full information as to what that looks like. I will say what kind of raised a red flag with me with this call when I was listening is that I know a lot of people now, cause you can almost like therapy, people who go to therapy have a language. So I can hear the language. It's like, you, you know, oh, you went to Spain last summer. I can hear the, <laughs> the accent you picked up. So I can hear oh, the, the did language you, oh, Did use. you say Barcelona or you must've just yeah. gotten back? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it's important to note that therapy is a tool for you to help understand and unpack your own emotion. It's not a tool for you to go around psychoanalyzing other people and diagnosing other people. That takes much more than working with one individual who's only hearing your singular side of the story. Like there's years of education and multiple different teachers and books and things that you will have to go through. So I think that's important to note as well too. So that decision making process of like, I can decide what's best for a kid kind of stems from the same place of I can diagnose this person who I have a limited window into their intimate life and their life in general. And I can tell what kind of person this is already. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think she needs to slow her roll. I would say what I would say to the caller is you only just met this dude. He's got a complicated, involved relationship with his ex-wife that he has a child with. They keep getting back together and breaking up and you were already thinking about being a throuple with them and then that went, you know, tits up and now you're gaming out how best to peel this guy off this woman permanently and have him for yourself. And maybe you just need to give it a few months to decide whether you want to be with this guy at all. Yes. Uh, this is the thing that's tough. As When it comes to sex, Dan, I'm a one person, like I'm a one and done person. And I feel like this, like I already blew my load on the last call. <laughs> and the advice I want to give is identical in that if you are in a space with somebody and you can't say yes to who that person is today, that might not be the relationship for you, especially when you have such low investment as you do right now. So if you can't accept this person for who they are and their circumstances and the people who are going to be in their life probably for 18 years plus at this point, then this may not be the relationship for you. And that's okay. All right. We have one more call that I feel terrible. You're looking forward to I feel terrible playing for you. I'm really sorry I'm doing this. Here we go. Hi, Dan and at-risk youth. I'm a queer white cis woman in her 30s living in the Pacific Northwest. My question is sort of intended for you, but really, I'm most interested in what advice your black and brown listeners might have for me. I know that any people who respond are individuals and don't represent the black community as a whole, but I'm still curious about what different folks might think about this. Basically, I'm really attracted to black femmes. Black girl magic is very real for me. I don't this in any dating profiles or publicize it in any way, but I want to celebrate black girl magic and express my appreciation for the beauty and exceptional sexiness of black women. Part of it is that I'm attracted to certain features, but a big part of it is the cultural force of black power and wanting to uplift that. Like I said, I mostly keep this to myself, and I don't put it out there when seeking new partners, because I don't want to cross any lines and fetishize black women. But I'd be lying if I said it doesn't affect how I swipe, and I feel or at least hope that that's okay because we are allowed to have preferences. If and when I do meet a woman who happens to be black and we develop a connection, how can I express this without coming off as fetishizing or patronizing? I feel like whiteness has been prioritized as more attractive than blackness for so many centuries, and I want to push back on that by expressing how I feel very differently, but in a way that is respectful. If I meet that person and we find a mutual attraction because we are compatible as individuals, it would be cool to also be able to share these feelings in a way that is comfortable for them. What words could I use? All right. Caller is interested in black girl magic. I am an old gay white muggle. I'm terrified of even answering this question. You're a black woman. I imagine this call gave you some feels. It's an interesting, I'm mixed with black. So my perspective is is different because I would, you know, I come from a, a multiracial home. And so, um, I think that you would need to talk to women who are in who are not ambiguously black and then you know hear what their reaction would be to that. My gut instinct would be that's just one of those keep it to yourself things. There's different ways of expressing that you are interested in someone's culture and interested in their in their story. So I'm using the word there, right? Like I'm interested in knowing about you. I'm interested in knowing about your history. And I've done this amount of investment in learning about people like yourself's history, but I care about you. When we tell somebody like, 
I have a preference for people like you because you fit into a value system that I have recently adopted and feel excited about. I just don't think that comes across as romantic as you think. Yeah, Uh, she says, you know, color affects how she swipes. I guess she means Tinder. Yeah. You know, if you swipe right on somebody, they know you're attracted to them. You swiped right on them. You don't have to go into exactly what it is. But I do have to say that one of the things that there's a lot of dialogue about in sex positive communities and the sex and relationship industrial complex after George Floyd was sexual racism, right? That there's a lot of, there's a lot of sexual racism out there. You see it like most often comes up on my show and like people putting no blacks, no Asians on their grinder profiles, dumb fucking gay white men doing that. Okay. So if we want to dismantle sexual racism, I don't think that means being sexually or romantically oblivious to race or blind to it. It means that you can appreciate the sexual desirability of people of all races, other races than perhaps that you were socialized to find beautiful because of the beauty ideal that that's promoted to all of us, which is a white European beauty ideal. And if you, as a white person, pull that out of yourself, that doesn't mean like you're just accidentally maybe going to date somebody who's a person of color. It means you may find yourself particularly attracted to people of color because of certain characteristics about the race. Isn't that the opposite of sexual racism? Not, you know, I don't see color with my dick, but I do. And I appreciate it. I mean, it's, it is objectively attractive. I think, I mean, at the end of the day, attraction is marketing, right? So the amazing thing about 2022 and probably the past five years is that we now have become our own program director. So before we were all fed the exact same images, the same storyline, same magazine covers. And now we have a decision to make and our algorithm, you know, is the answer to that. You know, what do we see? Who do we follow? What shows up in our, in our bubbles? And so you're making a conscious decision to change the channel from what the mainstream, you know, image is being fed as to a particular, you know, image of a black femme woman that you're like, this is what I find attractive and you've surrounded yourself with that, which has reinforced that attraction. And all of those things are okay. I just don't know if they're necessary to say out loud. Um, yeah. I, Cause I could, I can say that I know, like I, my husband looks like me and anybody who knew who my dating style or who my past five ex-boyfriends would not be surprised by that fact. I definitely didn't meet him and say like, I'm so turned on by the fact that our mirror image is like a slightly skewed vision of each other. That just would be kind of weird. Like I, I feel that, but it's not. Um, and I know that I made a conscious decision because I struggled with self-hate for a long time because I went to an all white school and then I went to an HBCU and then I kind of had to find my way of like, I don't fit in anywhere. And as a result, I don't like being myself. And so I went through a few years of self-love and self-discovery, which included directing my feed and my the things that I purchased and the magazines I purchased to look like me. And so my attraction became a reflection of the way that I adjusted my own lens. And so that's a storyline that I didn't have to share with my partner, but uh, it's my story. I have to say that the caller's language in the question does sound very fetishizing and objectifying. And they're really going to have to get a handle on that. Even if they do get a handle on it, if all the women they date over the course of a decade are black femmes, I've gotten calls from Asian women who were suddenly uncomfortable because they realized their white boyfriend had only dated other Asian women, right? And so they felt objectified even by dint of learning that about the person that they were with. Is it possible for someone who is white or someone who is black to date 
or, you know, or someone who's Asian to date people of one race exclusively without that being evidence that they're fetishizing or objectifying people of that particular race. You know, I don't get calls from a, a white woman who says, I realized all my boyfriends, ex-girlfriends are white women, and I'm suddenly self-conscious about that. I only get that call right. from women of color, usually very rarely men of color, who come to that realization and suddenly feel uncomfortable because they were selected, at least in part, because of their race. And that seems to matter when the it's a person who's Asian or, or BIPOC, and it doesn't seem to matter when that person's white. Isn't that right. self-evidence of some sort of double standard? I think it is. And I, I think that there's, I think objectification and fetish, fetishization, which is my least favorite word of all time, but I think that those are different, right? Like it's, one is I have a preference for, or I'm turned on by, and the other is I'm interested in utilizing you as an object mm -hmm. um, for some type of gratification. And so I don't see you as a person, I see you as like a checklist. So I think that it, uh, there's a difference between pre preference and fetishization. I think fetishization means I only view you through a sexual lens. So if I say like, I'm so attracted to um, X person's ass, right? And I love having sex with X race because of X feature. And so then I'm, pigeonholing them to a certain type of compartmentalized relationship based on my sexual fantasies about or that. Projections so of think, racial stereotypes often. Yeah. And if you kind of see the person for a whole person, like I'm not saying this person isn't saying that I just want to have a sexual relationship with a black woman. You're saying I, I want to love and I, I feel empowered by the story of black women. I think that they're, your heart is in the right place. And I think there's nothing wrong with having um, preferences. I just feel like the, language and the storytelling of that. Um, I go back to that, this book connect, and it talks about self-disclosure, how everything should be done in 15% increments. So 15%, you try it out, see how the person reacts. If it goes favorable, you can share 15% more. Yeah. And it's not, you know, if you do wind up dating a, a black woman, it's not her job to tell the story of black women to you every day as a cost of being in a relationship with you. They have to tell their own story and the story that you as a couple are creating together. I err on the side of that too, because I actually had a conversation with my friend who she's married to uh, a black man and they're having a kid together. And she was saying that now that they're having a kid together, she feels so much more excited and she feels a responsibility to learn about her husband's racial history so that she can now impart that onto their child. And even though myself and my husband are, are similar looking, we're very different, you know, come back different racial mixes. And I was like, man, I've never felt inclined to like ask him about his, <laughs> you know, his native history. It's just not, it's not mine. I know I, I dive into mine, he dives into his, and then we both bring that to our child. So there is something I think that is nice about a natural curiosity for somebody's heritage and their family history. I, it all can be done very nicely. And with the right partner, it can be flattering. I just don't think it's worded in the way that you said. I think there's a very big difference between I love your eyes and I have the hots for men who have brown eyes. And you're like, uh, I'm part of a collection that you've got in your basement, right? That feels weird. Let's let's just leave this call behind, which this call made me so uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> I'm anxious to leave it behind. I just want to quickly get your take on objectification. Like, my feeling is it's fine to objectify people. People are also objects. We are things, mass. We take up space. The problem is when someone sees you only as an object, there are definitely times I just want to be objectified by my husband. I just want to, him to fuck the shit out of me. I just want him to like <laughs> take me. 
right? Not take me as this complicated, difficult person that we have like conflicts with each other around all sorts of different things and spending and money and bills and whatever is going on in the house. It's, it's stressful. I want him to, we want, both of us want to set that all aside and just like be toasters that got thrown at each other. We want to be those objects. That sometimes is uncomfortable for people who listen to me to hear me say that it's okay to be, we want to be objectified. There's a gay bar in Seattle a million years ago that used to have a t-shirt that said, I am not just a person. I am also a piece of meat. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think sometimes objectification gets a bad rap because we've all experienced objectification at the hands of someone who didn't see our humanity, who treated mm-hmm. us only as an object, who wasn't capable of, you know, chewing gum and walking at the same time, treating us as an object while also remembering that we're a person with feelings too. Uh, but I'm kind of pro-objectification and I'm wondering where you come down on it. Yeah, I think that this is a connotation thing because um, there's obviously the word objectification doesn't feel good for me because I feel like single use plastic, but I like to be degraded. So that means that you see me for all that I am and you're like, I'm going to treat you like you're less. So I like that. I like to be called degrading names in the bedroom and I like to be fetishized. I like if my husband was to look at me and be like, your tits look amazing. I want to like dog fuck them right now. So that would be great to me. But then if I, he made me feel like in that, there wasn't like an ex and also an appreciation for the well-roundedness, but like, I see that all that you are, but I'm just choosing to look at you as a little bit less for 45 minutes to maybe an hour and a half on a really great day. But I think that's, again, that we may be saying the same thing, but there's just different words that make us comfortable and turn us I on. knew I liked you, like the degradation thing. <laughs> yeah, don't call me a faggot unless I'm literally sucking your dick and then call me a faggot. <laughs> yes. Totally down. That's when you can call me a faggot when I have a dick in my mouth. Like, not, not the rest of the time, not driving Guilty by me charged. in a car. Like, so that kind of degradation talk with someone you love and that, or feel safe with, and that can be someone you're in a relationship with, that can be someone you just met, but you vibe with and you really feel good about being treated that way, it emphasizes to me that kind of degrading talk that you're not those things. It actually throws them into stark relief because when it stops, when they turn it off and you're, you know, the loving partner again and being treated as a loving partner again, you feel sort of affirmed and seen and that you are these, you are a mass of contradictions and yes, and that your desires are sometimes in conflict with your self-presentation. And like the, per- the person we present, you know, the person that we, the performance of the person that we know ourselves to be in public, that's stressful. And sometimes we need to let that go. And being with somebody who can objectify you in a kind and loving way and can degrade you in a kind and loving way, I find the release of that to be intoxicating. And it doesn't undo the person I am 99% of the time. It actually makes me feel more the person I am 99% of the time. I agree. I think that when you get into long-term relationships, especially, we want to feel like we are still surprising and that we're not taken for granted. I love the word contradiction. That to me perfectly sums up how I want to feel. I want my husband to feel like I'm an incredible mom, but also incredibly slutty 45 minutes later when she's asleep. And that contradiction and him accepting the surprisingness of me, because part of the fun of love is getting to a place where I can finish your sentences and I feel like I know you better than anybody else. But the fun of desire is I don't know what the you're going to do next. And I still want to feel like I'm that person who's surprising and exciting and 
dirty and filthy and cool and interesting and all of those things to you. So I, I think that the, yeah, the contradiction is a word I'm going to keep to describe exactly how I want to feel when I'm in love and in lust. Shan Boudram, host of Lovers and Friends, the podcast, author of The Game of Desire. Where can my listeners find you online? You just said it. That's it, man. <laughs> you knew you covered your bases. You hit that out the park. So where are you? You're on Twitter. Everyone's on Twitter. Yes, that's. I'm on Twitter. I'm on. I'm on Instagram. It's probably my uh, primary platform at Shan Booty. That's Booty with a D for my last name, not my anatomy. Thank you so much, Shan, for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having uh, me. This was a joy. And now I can let go of the tension of that black girl magic call. It was just. <laughs> I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> you did great. Just that sitting in my inbox was making me feel <laughs> uncomfortable. Hello, I am a transmasculine a fab guy and i am having a little bit of trouble in my sex life in that i am in a um, monogamous relationship and my boyfriend is strictly monogamous however i feel like sex is an expression of love and i don't feel like that for me personally should be limited to one partner and i'm wondering how could I express that interest to someone who is strictly monogamous, especially in a setting where they've had past relationships and due to an interest in non-monogamy? How would you approach that situation? And, you know, obviously keeping in mind that the ultimate end goal is a healthy long-term relationship, I don't think I would break up with him no matter the result of any conversation revolving non-monogamy. But I just don't know how to express that there are people I would like to fuck <laughs> that are my friends because I feel like that would be a really enjoyable expression of love. And even in what feels like, in my mind, a fairly platonic way just to have the sexual experience. So it sounds like your boyfriend has been pretty clear about being monogamous, wanting a monogamous relationship, a strictly monogamous relationship. It doesn't sound like you've been similarly clear, honest, and straightforward about your preference for a non-monogamous relationship. You two may be sexually incompatible, romantically, Incompatible. Maybe the sex is awesome, but you would like your committed relationship to be an open one. You would like the freedom to sometimes be intimate and sexual with friends in a different way uh, than you are sexual with your partner. You have to be able to be honest about that. Your partner is being honest with you about who they are and what they want, or in your partner's case, requires. You have to be honest with them, with him, about what you want, even if it's not what you require. Sounds like for this person you have been up to now, during this relationship, willing to be monogamous. You haven't been willing to risk being as honest with your partner as your partner has been with you. You're going to have to risk it. You're going to have to get honest. You can say to your partner, for you, I will make a monogamous commitment and I will honor that monogamous commitment, but you have to know that what I would prefer, and maybe we can revisit this conversation 
later. Maybe you'll feel differently in five years than you do now. But you have to know that my ideal relationship would be an open one. And if knowing that, that you want an open relationship but are willing to make a monogamous commitment to him isn't enough for him, if you have to want exactly what he wants for him to feel comfortable in this relationship because he's had a few past relationships end due to an interest in non-monogamy, and I assume that interest came from his uh, past partners, not from him, all right, it's not going to work out. It's not going to work out. And better to know now that it's not going to work out than to know five years, uh, an adopted rescue dog and a co-signed lease from now, better to know it now. Some monogamous people are willing to take yes for an answer from folks who would prefer non-monogamy or open relationships. Terry, when I first met him, wanted a monogamous relationship and I did not. But for him, I was willing to be monogamous and we were monogamous for four years. And then things obviously changed. Maybe that's what can happen here, but our relationship wouldn't have survived. Wouldn't have been possible if when Terry said he wanted monogamy and I was like, eh, not really what I want, but okay, for you, I'll do it. If he'd been like, not good enough, that makes me feel insecure and uh, so no, then we wouldn't be together and we shouldn't have been together. But he was willing to take yes for an answer when he asked for monogamy from me at the beginning of our relationship. And that made our relationship, which is now a non-monogamous relationship, possible. Maybe you and your boyfriend will have the same sort of journey or maybe not. Because if what your boyfriend wants is to be with somebody who also wants monogamy and nothing else, or to be with someone who will lie to him and tell him that's what they want, even if it's not what they want, you two aren't going to work out. And yeah, tell him. Tell him now. Be honest about who you are, what you want, what you imagine your ideal relationship looking like in the same way he's been honest with you. You're going to have to take that risk. Okay, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Sarah Barnett tweets, got my heart broken and made this TikTok, but grateful Dan Savage made a cameo in it. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I'm so sorry you got your heart broken, Sarah, and I was happy to make that little cameo in your sad but resolute post-breakup TikTok. You're sipping from your ITMFA cup, your ITMFA mug, in your TikTok, that's my cameo. Always gonna side with the person in any romantic dispute who got themselves some Savage Love merch. So fuck that motherfucker. Sarah, you're well rid of them. Amanda K, 1983 tweets, oh lord, at fake Dan Savage as a scientist, I feel what you said in the intro to Savage Lovecast 799 so much. There's probably a truth to it. I assume what you're referring to, Amanda, is my point that every man I've ever met in STEM is a kinkster, a huge fucking pervert, each and every one. Now, I know, I know, I meet a lot of perverts. Some are scientists. It doesn't follow that all scientists are perverts, but I feel confident saying that enough of them are that we're going to do real harm to science if we start firing all the perverts. And finally, Erica Gabriel tweets, I started my day with a daily devotional podcast and then the Savage Lovecast right after. This is why it's hard for me to date. I need a man who understands this balance in my life. 
Well, there's a man out there. There are men out there, plural, more than one. There is no the one, but there are lots of men who could be the one for you, the one you round up. And some of those men are going to understand that balance in your life, but others of them, others can be made to understand it. Okay, thanks to everyone who tweeted about this show this week or posted your other social media accounts. We really appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet about the Lovecast on next week's Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, Nancy, the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth, and all of the listeners. This is the caller from episode 798 who had her very first orgasms from oral sex at age 35 thanks to the erotic fiction I had been reading that flipped that switch in my brain. Here it is. I had been reading a book called Sinner by the author Sierra Simone. I love everything I've read by her. Sinner in particular was the book that described the oral sex from the man's point of view in a way that just made me believe that a man wants to be down there. Hey, Dan and the team. I'm calling in response to the caller from episode 799, whose relationship has fallen into a companion at rut. My girlfriend and I have been together for two and a half years and living together for almost one, so I feel like our situations are similar. I definitely have a really low sex drive and I'm really quick to, quote unquote, forget how to have sex. A couple of things have worked for us that I think Dan missed. First, we've really embraced the silliness of sex. Even if it feels goofy and we're laughing for a bit, laughing together while cuddling naked in bed really increases intimacy and makes us feel close. Second, we schedule sex when needed, like if we're having an extremely busy week or if we aren't feeling very connected. If it's on my calendar, I won't forget about it. Third, we've bought some really low-stakes adventures and taken them into the bedroom to help us move from silly to sexy. We went to our local sex shop and bought some kinky dice. We rolled the dice to determine who's the dom or sub, what clothes or costumes we're wearing, what tools to use like spanking or handcuffs. Uh, We also went out on a limb and bought a sexy activity book made by the folks who made uh, the adventure challenge. We've only done one of the adventures so far. It was taking turns giving each other a lap dance while the other person was tied to a chair. And it took us from silly to sexy really quickly. How do you teach your man to clean his ass properly? Incentive is the most compelling tool to teach stubborn people. So get in the shower, make sure you have a handheld shower head. Wash his body, wash his ass thoroughly, rinse it, bend him over, eat his ass out, install a bidet on your toilet the next day. Explain that clean asses get eaten and dirty asses get no sex. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about some of the advice I gave on this week's show? Can you do better? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We prefer voice memos. They have better sound quality, but we love getting your calls, your questions, your comments, however you get them to us. Seattle, San Francisco, and Portland, the Hump 2022 Opening Film Festival is headed your way. We have shows throughout this weekend in Seattle at On the Boards, San Francisco at Victoria Theater, and then I will be heading to Portland to host screenings at Revolution Hall March 3rd through 5th. Visit humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets today. Also, new merch, the Savage Store has some brand new items, including a fuck first mug like Sarah had in her TikTok video. You can get one. Also, a hot, really nicely designed, I think, 
GGG mug, which is going to become my new teacup at the office. Go to savage.love to browse all the new items. All right, follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Shan Boudram on Twitter at Shan Booty. And check out her podcast, Lovers and Friends. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. And I'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.